Hi, I'm Eden. And I'm Nicole. Welcome to Roadside, Roadside Horror, Horror Show. Show. We're in Wyoming again this week. Yep, good old equality state. It's been a fun ride so far, and I hope that it continues being a fun ride in this episode. I know that I have a pretty good story, I think, and I'm sure Nicole came up with a good story as well. I did. I'm, I'm really excited about the story I found because I had never heard of it, and it's pretty gnarly. Oh, God. It would be crazy if um, your true crime story ties into my haunted story. Probably not, Maybe. but we'll see what happens. Yeah, I guess we'll have to find out. Well, I guess to kick things off on our on our strange trip through Wyoming, I can start with some of their strange and weird laws. Please do. All right. Uh, the first law I have for you is kind of a cool law in my opinion, but in Wyoming, they passed a law that said that any new building that costs over $100,000 to build must put at least 1% of the funds budget towards building it towards artwork for the building. Okay. I like that. Yeah. It's kind of cool because like, you know how sometimes like companies will just throw out these big, ugly, you know, buildings. So this kind of prevents that from happening and it keeps Wyoming beautiful. That's awesome. You know, I actually was thinking recently about getting into like trying like pottery or something or like painting. <laughs> Because, like, um, I can do other artsy stuff, but I'm not very good with, like, I can draw if I take forever to do it. <laughs> um, but, like, I want to try, like, painting or pottery or something fun. Well, I know a pottery studio that does, like, a spin and sip night if, you're ever, if you ever want to do it. It's super fun. You get to play on a pottery wheel. Hell yes. I will do that. All right. I will let you know next time I see it advertised. We can make a giant penis like in Ghost. <laughs> Okay, my next law for you is interesting. I have seen similar laws, but none quite the same. Uh, in Wyoming, it is illegal to fish with a firearm as your main implement. So I think in some states we've seen where it's illegal to use explosive to fish. Yeah, there was one that had that. Yep, don't shoot at any of those perhaps, you know, land whales that you might see in this... <laughs> <laughs> in the landlocked state of Wyoming. <laughs> yeah, what the fuck? <laughs> Gotta love no. these laws. Yeah, I think this is more, uh, this kind of makes sense, though, if you think about Wyoming. I guess there are some lakes, but it's primary, primarily river country, and it just seems like a bad, a bad idea to fire a gun into a river. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't sound like the best move you could possibly make. Sort of like how people fire guns into the air in celebration. Mm -hmm. That bullet's gotta come down somewhere. Exactly, exactly. Okay, next. This is a weird law, but I also think I appreciate this law and what it's trying to achieve. In Wyoming, it's illegal to wear a hat that obstructs people's view in a public theater or place of amusement, like a sports stadium. Okay, yeah, I could get behind that law because I've seen some people do some really shitty things. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's like, get your goddamn 10-gallon hat away from me. Put down the cheese head hat. I can't mm -hmm. see around it. <laughs> exactly. And now on to the set of laws that I like to call the drunk people laws. Oh, yay. The drunk people laws. We like these. Yeah. I don't really know what's happening in Wyoming, but they have a lot of laws prohibiting alcohol, but also a lot of laws protecting drunk people from being idiots. So let's dive in. First up, it is illegal for a junk dealer to con conduct any business transactions with a drunk person. Probably for the best. 
Yeah, because I mean, I guess they're dealing junk, so you don't want to swindle a drunk. That's true. Junk drunk. Junk drunk. <laughs> junk drunk love. Ooh, I got a new Ooh. reality show to pitch somebody. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So in Wyoming, it is illegal to ski while under the influence of alcohol. And it is also illegal to mine while under the influence of alcohol. I could see both those things ending really badly. So, yeah, I could see where that that would fit in. These aren't yeah. actually so weird after all. Yeah, they're not so weird. But I think the weird thing to me is like, why does this have to be a law? <laughs> True. Yes. <laughs> like, yeah. Because people are morons. Yeah, basically, basically. Um, and then the last, because you might be drinking law, is that in Wyoming, despite being the equality state, it is still illegal for a woman to stand within five feet of a bar while drinking. What? Go get a table. Just go get a table. They're not allowed to stand within five feet of a bar while drinking? Mm-hmm. They can't okay. drink at the bar. They can go to the bar, they can order their drink, then they got to go get a table. What are they, 12? Like Bar drinking okay. is men's work, Eden. Wow. <laughs> wow. Okay, this one's, yeah. Yeah, kind of okay. weird, right? Yeah. So far, I was on, like, on with them with these laws. I thought, okay, you know what? Wyoming knows what they're doing. No, not with this one, Wyoming. Not with this one. You failed me. And you failed women everywhere. <laughs> Yeah, this is definitely one of those old laws where it's like, well, ladies can't be jostled when gentlemen are trying to get their drinks. Exactly, so. yeah. And then one last law for you because it's kind of weird, but also because it is the most Wyoming thing I've ever heard. Uh, in Wyoming, it is illegal for someone to fail to close a fence. If you leave a fence gate open, you can be fined up to $750. And I think that makes a lot of good sense in the state where you have a lot of livestock and cattle. Yeah, I think there's probably more livestock and cattle than people. But yeah, always close close that fence slash door behind you. You weren't born in the barn. That was the horse. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> so, I mean, like, I understand. And yeah, okay. Uh, but, I mean, who's who's checking up on this? Like, I don't think this is one of those that are enforced at all. I know. I feel like that's one of those things where, like, if you, you, you make somebody mad because you left their fence open, they're going to come down with the, all the might of that $750 fine on you. Exactly. Some Karen's going to get you. <laughs> Hashtag Karen laws. <laughs> oh, God, that can be a new thing. <laughs> the Karen laws of this state are. Like, you know how some states have blue laws? Well, we have Karen laws. <laughs> <laughs> So that's that's uh, my roundup of uh, weird Wyoming laws. I liked it. It was it was uh, probably the least weird state that we've encountered so far. Agreed. Agreed. Very level headed in the equality state. Just trying to help you not get hurt or jostled while you're drinking your alcohol. Exactly. Women can't be trusted around booze. Come on. <laughs> so I can dive into my true crime story for you. Please do. I think you'll like it. So today we're heading to Rawlings, Wyoming, a city in the southern portion of the state. With around Can I nine... tell you a little secret? What? Mine's in Rawlings, too. Really? Yeah. Interesting. I wonder if we're going to have the same get to getting to know Rawlings. Maybe. Let's find out. All right. Well, 
Rollins is a city of around 9,000 residents, and it covers about 8.2 square miles and is the county seat of Carbon County. It was named for Union General John Aaron Rawlings, who camped in the area in 1867. Who cares Um, about some guy's camping trip? (laughs) Well, according to the city of Rollins website, General Rawlings was in command of a troop who were protecting the crew surveying the route for the first transcontinental railroad. And he was mighty thirsty. So he sent some of his scouts out to explore the nearby countryside. And these scouts came upon a spring that contained fresh drinking water. Oh, that kind of thirsty. Okay. Yeah, that kind of, I know. I was like, he was thirsty, huh? I'm like, (laughs) bitches always be thirsty. (laughs) When General Wallings finally had a taste of the water from the spring, he declared it was the most refreshing beverage he had ever tasted and reportedly said, quote, if anything is ever named after me, I hope it's a spring of water. And just like that, The man who was running the surveying party, a General Grenville Dodge, immediately named the spot Rollins Springs. And the community that grew around it continued to use the name Rollins Springs until it was incorporated in 1886 as Rollins. Awesome. I didn't go that far into my my study of him. The dude literally got his wish, which I think is pretty, pretty delightful. That's awesome. Yeah. In the late 1890s, Rollins was selected as the site of the Wyoming State Penitentiary, which first opened downtown in 1901. In 1980, a new, more modern facility was opened north of the downtown prison, and the original penitentiary was converted into the Wyoming Frontier Prison and was incorporated as part of the historic downtown. The downtown historic district, which is on the National Registry of Historic Places, also includes the George Ferris Mansion, one of the most significant Queen Anne-style buildings in Wyoming. Uh, Built between 1899 and 1903, the house's design is a -a two-and-a-half-story brick building with a prominent corner turret with six rooms on the main floor. It's trimmed in local sandstone, and it's a beautiful example of Queen Anne architecture, which is pretty prominent throughout Wyoming's early history. Other cool things about Rollins, it's known for a special red pigment that is made from hematite that is a iron oxide mined near the city. Paint that contains this Rollins-originated hematite has been called Rollins Red, and it's said to have anti-rust properties and is thought to have been the original paint used on the Brooklyn Bridge. That's cool. And it's like, it's really weird because a lot of those like black stones, like hematite and I believe like lodestone and maybe whatever the magnetic one is called, magnetite? I don't know. Um, If you cut it open, it's actually red. Yeah, because it's like iron and iron oxidizes red, right? Yeah. So I thought that was cool. There's a color red named after this town. And then Rollins is also where two veteran prospectors brought a group of diamond mine investors to seal the deal on one of the biggest confidence schemes in the history of the American frontier. My story for you today is about the Great Diamond Hoax of 1872. Okay, well, then it's not going to cross over with my story. Uh, And we do have a few of the same points in our intros, but most of it was different, so that's good. That's exciting. I'm glad we have uh, different points of view on the little town of Rollins. 
<laughs> All right, so let's dive into the great diamond hoax. Let's meet our two grifters, shall we? First up, the brains of the con. A man named Philip Arnold. Arnold was born in Elizabethtown, Kentucky in 1829, and he worked briefly as a hat maker's apprentice before enlisting in the U.S. Army as part as they fought in the Mexican-American War. Then he headed to California during the gold rush of 1849. Over the next 20 years, Philip Arnold worked in a variety of mining operations, and he appears to have done pretty well, making enough money for periodic trips back to Kentucky, where he eventually bought a farm, got married, started a family, and maybe stashed away a little cash. By 1870, Arnold was back in San Francisco working as an assistant bookkeeper for the Diamond Drill Company, a drill maker who made diamond-tipped drill bits from raw industrial-grade diamonds. Seeing the uncut diamonds sparked Arnold's interest, and he read several books on the subjects of how these diamonds were mined and used for industrial manufacturing. It was during this time that Arnold also connected with grifter number two, a man named John Slack. Slack was actually one of Philip Arnold's older cousins from Kentucky, who had similarly fought in the Mexican-American War, and ended up in California chasing his own fortune in the gold rush of 49 and other prospecting ventures. Though related and following a similar life path, the two cousins were pretty much polar opposites of each other's personalities. Where Arnold was very talkative, intellectually curious, and a dedicated worker, Slack was pretty taciturn and lackadaisical and a bit of a slacker, so I guess he was aptly named John Slack. Yeah, that makes sense good for his parents they knew what they were doing uh, <laughs> now that he had a solid partner arnold got to share his get rich quick idea with his cousin he was sure that this idea would set them up for life they would use the industrial grade diamonds like the ones he saw at the diamond drill company to sell a fake diamond deposit to wealthy investors you see the industrial grade diamonds were much cheaper than other diamonds that would be used to make jewelry. So they could basically buy a whole bunch of these cheap diamonds and salt or plant them in a patch of land. Slack agreed, and by November of 1870, the two men had acquired enough industrial diamonds, probably swiped from Arnold's employer, to put their plan into action. They made a quick stop in Arizona to purchase some additional rubies, garnets, and sapphires and mix them into their cache of industrial diamonds. Then they set about finding their ideal mark. After scouring the newspapers for intel on San Francisco's most prominent and wealthy businessmen, the cousins settled on George D. Roberts as the mark for their con. Roberts had made his money by bouncing quickly on speculative mining ventures, and he had a habit of not asking too many questions. He was friends with some of the wealthiest men in the city, Plus, Philip Arnold had actually worked for him already. He had been a gold prospector for Roberts about 10 years prior. So late one evening, Arnold and Slack appeared at Roberts' office, looking weather-beaten, clutching a small leather bag. They told Roberts that they had just arrived back in town and were very excited about a business proposition they had for him. They said that the leather bag contained something very valuable that they had found in, quote, Indian territory. When Roberts perked up at the mention of valuable, they showed him the contents of the bag. It was a mixture of rough diamonds, garnets, rubies, and sapphires. Ooh. 
Arnold said that they needed someone they trusted to hold on to the diamonds for a while, so he and Slack could return to their claim and further explore the size of the deposit they had found. They said if Roberts swore to keep the discovery a secret, they would offer him the opportunity to buy into their mining operation. Roberts, of course, quickly agreed, and when Arnold and Slack supposedly headed back out to their claim, Robert got to work blabbing about the discovery of a rich diamond deposit to his absolutely richest friend, William C. Ralston. Now, one of the wealthiest men in California at the time, William Ralston was the founder of the Bank of California and a legendary financier who built hotels, mills, and would throw his money behind pretty much any project. In the course of his career, he ended up backing some really successful investments like the Comstock Silver Load, and he also helped complete the Transcontinental Railroad. He invested in so many mining and prospecting ventures that the town of Grant, New Mexico, ended up renaming itself Ralston in his honor because he had funded so much silver mining near the town. Awesome. Yeah. Soon, Arnold and Slack showed up at Robert's office again, this time saying they'd returned from their claim. They had an even bigger bag of rough gems, about 60 pounds worth. Super psyched about the possible payday from Arnold and Slack's claim, Roberts tapped more wealthy friends on the shoulder, namely mining investors Ashbury, hairpending William Lentz, and retired U.S. Army General George S. Dodge. The men met with Arnold and Slack and offered to buy out their claim. The cousins at first seemed a little hesitant, and then Slack offered the men a por- his portion of the claim for $100,000, which would be about $1.2 million today. That's a lot of money. A lot of money. He said he wanted 50 grand up front as a down payment, and then he would accept the remaining 50 grand after the two made what they claimed was a third visit to the diamond field. Once Slack had his first 50 grand, he and Arnold headed out of San Francisco, but instead of going to their quote-unquote diamond field, they went to England, where they proceeded to buy more uncut gems. Okay. So now we're in July of 1871. The two cousins assume uh, fake names and go to London, where they buy $20,000 worth of rough-cut diamonds and rubies. Thousands of stones, in all, from a London diamond merchant. Some of the rough gems would go back to San Francisco as further evidence of the richness of their claim. And then the cousins would use the remaining gems to salt the fake diamond field so that they could bring their investors there to oh quote, unquote, God. discover them all. <laughs> wow. Okay. They're going through a lot of trouble for this essentially hoax that will probably make them rich. But still, mm-hmm. it's just, you know, wow. Yep. Yep. Practical jokers, these guys. These two. Oh, what are you going to do with Kentucky cousins? <laughs> so while the cousins were in England, Robert and Ralston decided, let's take a moment and just make sure we're not getting the fleece pulled over our eyes. So they decide to retain some experts who could inspect the diamond field and also appraise the rough gems. They hired a man named Henry Janin, who was a well-respected mining engineer, to survey the diamond field. However, due to weather conditions and his work schedule, Janin wouldn't be able to visit the claim until the following summer. To confirm the value of the gems, Roberts and Ralston sent a sampling to renowned New York jeweler Charles Lewis Tiffany. Yep, that Tiffany. 
of Tiffany and Company. That's what I was about to ask. Mm-hmm. Now, because Tiffany didn't have much experience with uncut gems, he drastically overestimated the worth of the diamonds. He valued them at about $150,000, which was far more than the twenty grand that the cousins had paid to acquire them in London. Uh, news of Tiffany's estimate drew even more investors into the scheme, including some pretty famous names like Tiffany himself, and then also General George McClellan, and the kind of shady but still overall interesting Massachusetts Congressman Benjamin Franklin Butler. That's a name I actually know, and not just the Benjamin Franklin part. Oh, yeah? Like uh, Beast Butler? Yeah, I, I know I heard about him at one point in my life. Can't tell yeah. you much about him, but I know that I've learned about him at some point. He he uh, had a pretty interesting political career. Uh, I know he was a general or major general in during the Civil War, and he tried to manage New Orleans, and it was terrible at it. And the citizens hated him so much, they gave him the nickname Beast. So oh, nice. There, yeah, thereafter, he became known as Benjamin Beast Butler, and he ended up running for uh, a Congress seat in uh, for Mass- from Massachusetts, one of the seats. And he served in Congress for quite a while. And like any classic, like, Gilded Age, robber baron, congressman, basically lined his pockets. And that was part of the reason that they were excited to bring Butler into this investment. Because he was also working on a, like, geographical mining bill that was being shepherded through Congress that would protect any uh investors who invested in mining operations so yeah there's a lot of uh interesting shadiness going on with uh benjamin franklin butler it seems so even shadier than actual benjamin franklin mm-hmm. watch your wife ben frank's in town exactly <laughs> because i mean just look at that man mm, sex on a stick come on mm-hmm. nothing says sexy like bifocals <laughs> and powdered wigs and all the rest <laughs> Ooh, baby is that gout all right but enough about founding fathers (laughs) (laughs) so back to the con now arnold has had uh basically the the america's top jewelry jewelers stamp of approval on his diamonds he is able to convince the investors to give him another hundred thousand dollars which he then uses to scurry back to london where he buys another eight grand in uncut gems and then travels back to the site that he and his cousin had selected for the bogus diamond field to make it even more prepared for when Henry Jennings, the mining inspect engineer comes out to inspect it. So finally Jennings schedule has allowed him to go to the diamond field. It is now the summer of 1872. Arnold and Slack arranged to take a group made up of some of the investors and Janin to the diamond field. In June, Janin, along with three of the investors, meet the cousins in St. Louis, Missouri. Then the group travels by train to Rollins. And when they disembark, Arnold sets them up with horseback. He says that he wants to keep the location a secret, so he leads them on this really confusing, like, four-day horseback journey, dipping in and out between the state lines of Colorado and Wyoming, so no one quite knows exactly where they are. A lot of the times during the course of this arduous four-day trip, Arnold will pretend to be lost and will start climbing hills so he can, quote-unquote, get his bearings. Finally, after all the nonsense, the men reach the site that Slack and Arnold had salted on the afternoon of June 4th, 1872. 
And of course, they're there, so they immediately begin looking for diamonds. They start searching in the areas where Arnold indicates he and Slack found several gems. And soon, and when I say soon, I mean within minutes, the men begin discovering diamonds and a few rubies and sapphires. Because it's obviously that easy. Yes, exactly. That's how mining works, right? Yeah, instant gratification. Mm-hmm. Now, this easy discovery sparks this incredible excitement among the men. Uh, the mining engineer, Janin, immediately exercises his option with the investors to purchase into the mining venture. And he also decides to stake out 3,000 acres around the current claim, even though it turns out that Arnold and Slack had only gone to the trouble of salting about an acre or so with gems. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> yeah. This isn't going to end badly for anyone. No, not at all. Not at all. In his super optimistic report, Janin confirms that the field seems to be the real deal. And he estimates that it's probably, they could probably extract with enough men at least a million dollars of diamonds from the small acreage that's part of the claim. And if they continue to expand their operation, they'll probably make 20 times that as they venture to the additional 3,000 acres he's claimed. So. The investors are super stoked. They realize that they can actually charge probably $40 per share to have people buy into their mining venture, which is about four times more than they were initially expecting to charge investors. Janin's report also ends up getting linked to the press. I wonder how. And looking <laughs> at you, Roberts, blabby man. Right. And the press kind of run with this. It triggers a wave of diamond fever. All of the jewelers in San Francisco start displaying diamonds in their windows. Investors from as far away as London start casting uh, interest and feelers out there to see if they can join into the Roberts Ralston venture. And even some rival mining operations set up their own claims on the land surrounding the Arnold Slack claim. Perhaps sensing the shift in the con and realizing just how serious it got, Arnold collects his remaining money from the buyout of investors in San Francisco's, and then both he and Slack flee the city. Their scheme ended up bilking his initial investors out of $650,000, which is about $13.7 million today. Nice. I mean, not nice, but it's a pretty good I, payday. I, I want money. I, I, I just want money. Sorry, guys. <laughs> And that would be quite the payday. See, at first you were like, God, they're going through a lot of trouble, but it was worth it. Yeah, it paid off. <laughs> Not that I condone their behavior at all, but you know what I mean. <laughs> uh, so Slack took his portion, which was about $100,000 or $2.1 and basically disappeared. I didn't really find a whole lot of information about what happened to him afterwards, although some sources speculate that he may have drifted around the West because there is a report of a man named John Slack who would have been about the right age. Uh, he apparently died in New Mexico in 1896. So they think that could be the same John Slack, but there's no real corroboration on it. Arnold, in the meantime, took the remaining $550,000 or about $11.6 million in today's money and went back to his family in Kentucky. He moved all of the money and most of the family property into his wife's name. You know, just in case anything happened. Oh, of course, because why not blame the wife? Exactly. Well, also, they couldn't, if he was sued, they couldn't touch it really because it's her money. That's true. And they true. could always yeah. get divorced and she could keep the money. 
And so everything seems to be going well. It looks like Arnold and Slack got away with it. That was until a chance encounter on a train in the autumn of 1872 led to the scheme's unraveling. Uh, Henry Janin, the mining engineer, who had that wild report that got leaked to the press, was on a train out of Oakland, and he encountered members a member of the government geological survey team. And he mentioned that he had recently visited a very rich diamond deposit in Wyoming. Now, the man he was talking to reported this encounter to his boss, a Yale-educated geologist named Clarence King. Now, I don't know if you ever heard of Clarence King, but he's a pretty interesting mm-hmm. guy, to say the least. If you're curious, I recommend checking out at least his Wikipedia entry because it's pretty wild. But Clarence King was one of that very special breed of explorer scientists that ventured into the American West in the 19th century to document all kinds of things. Everything from the natural beauty to the various cartography and mountains of the western part of the country. King himself left the East at age 21, and he joined the California Geological Society. He's the first man to known to have ascended several of the highest peaks in the Sierra Nevada mountains, and he gave Mount Whitney its name. There's actually an other mountain in the southern Sierra that's named after King. Wow. A mountain of a man. Mountain of a man. Mountain of a man. At the age of 25, King convinced the U.S. Congress to fund and appoint him a geologist in charge of his own federal survey, which would cover 80,000 square miles of inhospitable land between the Rockies and the Sierra Nevada Mountains. By the early 1870s, King and the three dozen men under his command had surveyed, mapped, and described this huge swath of the American West within that uh, stretch between the Rockies and the Sierras. And his fieldwork was becoming known as the 40th Parallel Survey. And he was almost done. So when he heard about the report of a really rich diamond field in the area covered by his survey, he wanted to track down Janin for more details. See, King knew that it was extremely rare for diamonds and rubies to be found in the same fields together. And he was also really concerned and a little shocked that his team could have missed such an important geological discovery as they surveyed that area of the country. Uh, yeah. After talking to Jane and he's like, all right, guys, pack your stuff. We're going to go check it out. And he headed out to Wyoming. <laughs> now, they arrived at the claim site in mid-October, which was bitterly cold at that time of year in Wyoming. And they ended up trekking 150 miles from Fort Bridger, Wyoming, to get to the site. The small team quickly found rubies and garnets when they arrived in the field. But the next day, when they continued their search, they came across several curious things. King found a rough diamond that was balanced on top of a slender rock, and he could not fathom how the gem had gotten there naturally or how it hadn't been disturbed for hundreds, maybe thousands of years. They noticed that when they would discover a diamond in the top layer of gently disturbed soil, they would also find several rubies right next to it. (laughs) Finally, they discovered several rubies in anthills, but oddly, the rubies were only in the anthills that seemed to have footprints around them and cracks on the surface. When they would check other anthills that didn't look like they had any cracks on the surface, there would be no rubies. Gee, I wonder how this is happening. Mm -hmm. Hmm. 
King and his men realized that this broke pretty much every natural geological law they knew about. So they spent some more time testing the area. Over the next two days, they did more tests to confirm their suspicions that the gems had been planted. The test that really sealed the deal was when they dug a trench about 10 feet deep in the area where a lot of diamonds have been discovered on the surface, very well distributed area of diamonds on the surface. And as they dug down, they realized they were absolutely no diamonds once they got down about a foot and a half. <laughs> so King's like, yeah, Not this is making people work for these. Exactly. Exactly. He's like, this is a hundred percent bogus. So he immediately notifies the investors. And unfortunately the story breaks in the press in late November, 1872. This Press coverage of the swindle is pretty bad. Not only does it humiliate these supposedly savvy, wealthy businessmen, like the most elite businessmen of San Francisco at the time, but it also damages Charles Louis Tiffany's reputation as a jeweler, considering he didn't realize that the rough gemstones weren't worth as much as he thought. Yeah. I mean, obviously it didn't have a long-lasting impact since Tiffany's is still like a huge retailer of diamonds so exactly he bounced back he was fine guys no worries (laughs) those blue boxes are still around today they are still around authorities in san francisco charged arnold and slack with fraud and they were indicted by a grand jury but they were never brought back to san francisco at all in fact the case ended up being dropped eventually a lot of my sources indicated that it probably because the really embarrassed investors just wanted to like squash the case so that it would kind of be for damage control reasons basically and that's a huge thing like fraud is the easiest not that i'm trying to give anyone ideas so please don't i yeah no um but fraud is one of the easiest things to get away with because people especially men Mm -hmm. do not want to admit that they were scammed and therefore they won't press charges a lot of times Exactly. And that's basically what happened here. Slack and Arnold did get away with it because they had embarrassed them so much. Although Arnold did end up settling out of court with investors and ended up returning about 150000 of his ill-gotten gains. Then in 1873, Arnold used the remaining portion of his swindled funds to start his own bank in Elizabethtown, Kentucky. Oh, God. <laughs> exactly who I would trust with my cash. Yeah, right? No, not at all. It's as much as I trust Casey Anthony babysitting my kids. Exactly. <laughs> and this is back in the, you know, gilded age, the, the late 19th century, where banking was kind of a bit of a wild game and anybody who wanted to could set up their own bank. Oh, yeah. Bankers were, like, notoriously unscrupulous back then. hmm hmm And eventually all of the unscrupulousness caught up with Arnold. In 1878, he became embroiled with a embroiled in a feud with another banker in Elizabethtown, and it resulted in an altercation where he was actually shot in the shoulder. Uh, while the gunshot did not kill him, he ended up uh, being severely weakened and caught pneumonia about six months later and died at age 49. Oh wow! Yeah. So that is the story of the great diamond hoax of 1872. 
the story is kind of interesting to me because when you read about it further, you realize that this was actually something that triggered a lot of speculation in the later half of the 19th century. So it was kind of interesting to me that I had never heard of the swindle that triggered the mania of people wanting to really get into the mining game. Um, And also all the famous names that popped up in it. So like recognizing names like William Ralston and, you know, Charles Tiffany and being like, wow, this was like the creme de la creme who got taken in by these, by these two cousins from like a backwater area of Kentucky. It's beautiful. Yeah. (laughs) That's wow. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's so weird and it's so weird and I understand, but it's weird that once we've gotten out this far West, it's been like a shit ton of mining stories mm-hmm, mm-hmm. everything has to deal with mining and the railroad and there's there is nothing else out here apparently i mean did you ever play red dead redemption that's what that game led me to believe <laughs> <laughs> i still have not gotten around to it but i definitely will because i've heard great things yes i think you'll i think once you play that you'll realize that's exactly what the american west is <laughs> <laughs> at least the american west at this time yep yep at this time that's true um, my sources for my story were Wikipedia, the New York Times, HistoryCollection.com, Smithsonian Magazine, WyomingHistory.org, and EcoGuard.com. Thank you, Nicole. That was fun. Glad you liked it. Who doesn't like diamonds? And I mean, being I, swindled. I hear they're a girl's best friend. Yes. So next time you uh, save up all your money and buy that diamond ring from Tiffany's, just think about this story. And a laugh. (laughs) Well, uh, I guess we will take a quick break and we will be back with my story and the news. All right. Talk soon, everyone. And we're back. And I lost the news articles that I saved. Don't know where they are. So I have a different one for you. All right. I mean, I'm in, I'm into new spontaneous things. Yes, exactly. And this one is interesting. Uh, It's from UPI.com. And the headline is deer removed from classroom at Tennessee elementary school. I mean, deers just want to learn how to read too. Exactly. Like what, what's the problem with this deer? He just came to learn guys. So. Wildlife officials in Tennessee said an officer responded to an elementary school where a deer forced its way into a classroom through an emergency exit. First of all, let's just unpack that for a second. The emergency exit? Aren't those usually like really sturdy and kind of hard to move? And don't have a way to get in from? Maybe? I I feel like emergency exits open out to the outside, not into the inside. Exactly. How'd this deer do it? Hopefully they will tell us. The Tennessee Wildlife Resources Agency said Officer Caleb Stratton responded Tuesday morning to the Westside Elementary in Springfield on a report of a deer inside the building. The TWRA said the deer had apparently forced its way into the school through an emergency exit. The white-tailed buck was in good spirits and allowed Stratton to lead it to an exit, (laughs) the school said. The deer was estimated to be between 2.5 and 3.5 years old. And, oh, that's the end of the article. It was a quick news read this week. I, I will say it's kind of funny that, one, they're like, the deer was in good spirits. It's like, oh, thank God. Nothing's worse than a moody deer. Exactly, and then, yes. 
too, I will say that uh, there were a few times in high school where deer got into our school. Which really? Was, yes, which is funny because you like where my high school was was a very urban area. It was in like the the heart of yeah. one of the the cities near us. Um, but yeah, and part of it was because we had several buildings to walk between, and we were also very close to um, a park where I guess deer lived. And the interesting thing is that um, we would because we would leave the doors between the buildings open animals would get in so we had the deers get in us a couple times we had a couple of like straight dogs get into the building it was like just one of those like you never knew what you were gonna get when you were just trying to change class so that's wow we never had anything that interesting happen in our school the worst we had was we did have bugs in the ceiling that i could see in my one classroom that was pretty disgusting okay yeah and like in like the panels where the fluorescent lights were, I couldn't say that word. You could just see all these little bugs scurrying around, and I did not like being in that class because of that reason. Uh, no, you got to call the Terminex, dude. That's like, mm-mm. exactly. Get rid of them, please. They're not cute and cuddly. They're bugs. <laughs> well, thanks for sharing that bizarre new story, Eden. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I didn't know about the epidemic of freaking deer at your school god yeah deers deers just want to learn like everybody else anyway i do have a story for you guys and my story for this week also takes place in rawlings wyoming so as we know rawlings is in carbon county which i did find a little funny since we have a carbon county in pennsylvania as well i also noticed that i'm like that is funny yeah i was like did i read that right yes i i did the same thing i was like what <laughs> Um, it's also the county seat of Carbon County. Uh, and why do I have such a knack for finding stories in county seats? I have no idea. Just the magic most touch, Eden. Always... Just the magic yeah, touch. Yeah, I don't know what it is. Anyway, Rawlings has a population of around 9,259, according to Wikipedia, and an area of 8.29 square miles. It was named, like Nicole said, after General John Aaron Rawlings, who camped there in 1867. It does have a few notable people who are from here. Uh, Chips actor Larry Wilcox, although he was born in San Diego, he was raised in Rawlings. Uh, The voice of Mr. Movie Phone, Russ Leatherman, is from Rawlings. And Big Nose George, an American outlaw of the Wild West, was hanged by a lynch mob here as well. Good old Big Nose. Yes, exactly. That's what I want my name to be. I mean, come on. (laughs) It would be fitting, but we're not going to talk about that. Um... (laughs) There seems to be some pretty cool places in Rawlings if you're visiting and looking for something to do. There's this fun shop called Geekish Things, and they sell exactly what they sound like they sell, from games to dice to comic book stuff, and even soy candles with interesting names like Unicorn Puke. Okay. Yeah. It sounds like a fun shop, and I want to go there. Um, (laughs) There's also a local park called Tully Park which is a nice, quiet place to relax or take a walk or let the kids play. Um, But there's like some old Wild West murals on the walls around the park as well. And what looks like an old train station or something, which I think is pretty cool, too. But not as cool as my favorite thing in Rawlings, which is also the subject of my story. Wyoming's first state prison, Wyoming Frontier Prison. Oh, nice, nice. 
And you guys might be saying to yourselves, Eden, really another haunted prison? Well, yes, I'm doing another haunted prison because they're creepy and I love them. So be good little roadsters and listen up. To start things off, I'll tell you guys that this prison opened in 1901, but it started being built in 1888. That's a long time to wait, but I will tell you why. Yeah, that is curious. Yeah, so 13 years. First off, there's a very simple reason, which would be lack of funding. I don't know why you would start something and not have the money to finish it unless it was like really unforeseen, but 13 years unforeseen? I don't think so. <laughs> They're just like, I have this idea. Okay, well, we reached the end of our money. Here's part of a building. Well, Let's you should have shopped smarter then, Bob. Exactly, Bob. <laughs> um, Another major reason for the delay is because Wyoming weather apparently sucks. While no website would elaborate on this for me, I'm assuming it would have to do with all the snow, which we discussed being a big deal for Montana. So why not Wyoming, too? Yeah, and I guess the, because of its location, too, my, uh, Wyoming winters are very, very bitterly cold. So you can't really, just like Wyoming, like uh, Montana, you can't really do all that much. Exactly. You're pretty much screwed. Despite these setbacks, the doors did open in 1901, like I said. And you'd think 13 years would be more than enough time to get everything prepared, right? Oh, of course. I mean, they had ample time it, to plan. Well, it wasn't. <laughs> Let's think back to my haunted North Dakota story about St. Joseph's Hospital, mm -hmm. because it was a lot like that. With weather being a huge issue when it came to getting this place up and running, you'd think one of the first priorities would be heating, right? Of course. Wrong. <laughs> wrong, 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 wrong. They did have heating, but it was next to nothing. It's pretty much like freezing your ass off, yet imagining you're on a tropical island and praying the thought will help you. Not good. Yikes. They also had no electricity or even running water at this point. So what is now cell block A was the original structure, which contained 104 cells. As you can imagine, overcrowding was a huge issue here, and I find that it's one of the most common when we talk about these haunted prisons. Throughout its 80 years of life, it housed about 13,500 people. Let's do a little math. They started with 104 cells. In 1904, they added 32 more cells to that same building, which brings our total to 136. Okay. Cell block B wasn't added until 1950. Okay. And I don't know how many cells it added, but that's a long time to wait. Even if it doubled the amount of people, that would only be 272 cells in cell block B, like including cell block B. Yeah. Uh, there were also solitary confinement cells there as well, so it's not like it was strictly a standard cell block. <laughs> One good thing about cell block B, though, is that it had much better heating and hot running water, which still wasn't a thing in cell block A. Yikes. So you're definitely trying to get into the new wing of the, of the prison. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's right. It's been 46 years and cell block A still doesn't have hot water. But I'm assuming from how my source worded things that it at least had water at this point, which is a step up from where it was. Cell block A did eventually get hot water, but not until around 1978. What the fuck? Yeah. We haven't even gotten to the super bad shit yet, and I'd already haunt the shit out of this place. I know. This place already sounds like a living hell. Yeah. And we're not at the bad stuff yet? 
Ugh. No, it wow. gets worse. All right, I'll buckle in. So cell block C was added in 1966, which was a maximum security block housing the prison's most dangerous criminals. This was a super small addition, by the way, and only added 36 cells. What this prison may have lacked in space and resources for the criminals it was meant to reform, it more than made up for in places and ways to discipline anyone unlucky enough to be housed there. Of course. Of course, because why not? Why the fuck not? This is America. Uh, There were a variety of solitary confinement areas, and there was even a dungeon. I thought this was turn-of-the-century Wyoming, not fucking Westeros. <laughs> what? Why is there a dungeon? Can someone explain why there's a fucking dungeon in the prison? Is it because of Jesus? Probably. <laughs> That's what I would assume. And now that I made that joke about Westeros, who else is imagining the Sky Cells at the Eerie? Oh, I forgot about the Sky Cells. They were really terrifying yeah. to me. I did not like those. They, oh, my God. No, I hate heights. So that would be a huge yes, problem for me. Me too. I was and like, I well, think, this is hell. I think it would be an even worse punishment in Wyoming in the winter. No. <laughs> so, no, I doubt that it had sky cells. But still, I mean, it's not much better. <laughs> <laughs> I looked for more information on the dungeon. But came up empty handed. I did find a picture of the door to it, which made me feel all sorts of creepy, though. Mm. And it's not even like I could describe like it in a very interesting way. It's a very nondescript, like a uh, wood paneled door that looks more like a shack. Okay. And it's just, it's creepy. So anyway, if you weren't sent to any of those delightful places, there was something called the punishment hole. Oh, well, that sounds pleasant. Oh, yeah, of course. Which is where they would handcuff people and beat them with rubber hoses because, you know, why not? Wow. The best and worst part about the punishment hall is that you could hear the screams all throughout the cell block, which was meant as a warning for anyone else who might be thinking about causing trouble. How fucked up is that? Yeah, like what fucking monsters ran this place? Exactly. And while this prison held mostly men, it did also hold 11 women in its time, the last of which was transferred out in 1909. Mm. Executions were also performed at Wyoming Frontier Prison, and there were two ways they could do it, hanging or gas chamber. Initially with the hangings, they used what was called the Traveling Julian Gallows which is a unique little device made right there in the great state of Wyoming. Do you know anything about this, Nicole? No, I've never heard of this before. I didn't either. Uh, it was an interesting way of doing things because no hangman was required, essentially. Okay. I think it was like to take the guilt off the hangman. I don't yeah. know. Classic dilemma when executing people. Exactly. Because now aren't you a murderer too, kind of? Yeah. You are. Uh, you are. There was a trap door the person would stand over that would drop out, and it was connected to a bucket filled with water. Okay. This bucket would slowly fill until the extra weight triggered the trap door below. This method, however, proved to be rather shoddy when used to execute a gun for hire named Tom Horn, who was sentenced to death for the murder of a 14-year-old boy. The water bucket did indeed trigger the trap door like intended, but the angle and force needed to snap the victim's neck, however, 
did not. And instead, Tom Horn swung there for 17 minutes until he finally died. Yeah. At that point, um, you 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 cut the person down and redo it. Like, exactly, holy God. No, I mean, yeah, it's kind of like when um, Mary, Queen of Scots, was beheaded. I think it was Mary, Queen of Scots. When they tried, like, several times and her head wouldn't come off. Mm. I think they eventually kind of, like, sawed it off with a knife, which is really just, just disturbing. But, yeah, so 17 fucking minutes just swinging there. Um, and oh god, let's see a song stuck in my head, and it's really inappropriate with the images that I'm seeing. <laughs> okay, we're just gonna um, leave that there. <laughs> yes, so you would probably think that they wouldn't want to use this crappy device after that, right? I mean, one with hope, wrong again. Oh god, there is no hope. This hanging took place at a different prison in 1903 and was sent to Wyoming Frontier Prison after this debacle, where it stayed in use until 1936. Later, the prison had a special hanging room, which I don't know much about, but it looks super creepy. Not creepier than their gas chamber, however, which is this weird metal box with windows and a very uncomfortable-looking chair that I do not like and it gives me chills to look at. There was also a special place called the Death House, which was their version of Death Row. Luckily, only 14 people were ever executed here. Most of them had the hanging and not the gas chamber, though. Hmm. I just feel like given the state of this prison that, like, while they didn't execute a whole lot of people, I'm sure a ton of people died there. Oh, my God, yeah. And there were riots. Prison guards died chasing people down who tried to escape. There's a whole bunch of nonsense that happened. Um. So, yeah, Uh, the weirdest part of their history for me, though, has got to be the fact that this place was also kind of a business. And I'm not talking about the way that for-profit prisons are basically businesses. Mm -hmm. Like, the first time they started producing products was a broom factory in the prison, which lasted until 1917 when the prisoners had a big old riot and burnt it to the ground. Uh, Yeah, it was eventually rebuilt. And they started making shirts there instead, which is even more of a what the fuck for me somehow. I I don't really know why, but it just is. Uh, The shirts also brought in twice as much money. So thanks, prison riots, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. So, I mean, what are they doing with this money? Because it wasn't used for the upkeep of the prison, it doesn't seem since the first block didn't even have running freaking hot water yeah, until the 70s. That's weird. Yeah. So they were riding the shirt gravy train up until 1934 when a law was passed saying that you couldn't sell or transport goods made in prisons from state to state, which caused them to lose money. So they stopped. Well, there goes that racket. I mean, business plan. Oh, but they're not done yet, Nicole. No, they are not done not. yet. After that, they produced blankets, which won awards for their great quality because apparently that's a thing that happens. Okay, prison uh, blankets. I would not associate that as quality, but with, whatever. Yeah, I don't think of it as the epitome of comfort and luxury. Uh, but hey, you know, apparently they're doing a good job. Thanks, prisoners. Their last endeavor was a pretty normal one, from what I understand, which was the manufacturing of license plates. And that I'm, I'm used to with prisons. I've heard that many times. 
The prison closed in 1981 and sat collecting dust until 1987 when it was used to film a movie I've never heard of with a very creative title, he said sarcastically. Prison. (laughs) Yes, the movie's called Prison. It takes place, guess what, guys? In a prison. Wow. 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 Um, I might check it out, though, because it's apparently Viggo Mortensen's first movie. Huh. And there are some bigger named actors in it, too, like Kane Hodder, a.k.a. Jason Voorhees from the Friday the 13th movies, and Tom Everett, who's been in a ton of stuff. So, yeah, little known movie, big cast. While the prison is now a historic landmark, it wasn't back then, and it did suffer some damage from filming. Since then, they've also opened a museum inside the prison, which seems pretty cool. This place is open for tours, and I would love to go sometime. I'm also not the only one, seeing as they have about 15,000 guests annually. Wow, that's pretty good for a prison museum. Uh, absolutely, yeah. And I'm sure enough of them have experienced some crazy paranormal activity that happened here, which I will brief you all on now. But I will say that if you do plan on taking one of those tours, you need to call ahead. If you are not in the area, you need to call ahead, book something. And even if you booked it already, call ahead again the day that it's happening to make sure that weather conditions are good enough for you to go up there because they have some trouble. So first thing visitors might feel is an overwhelming sense of anxiety when roaming the cell blocks or the rest of the prison, they just feel this sense of dread and anxiety. Okay, makes sense. Guests also report one of our favorites, Nicole, pressure on your chest. No. Yeah, this mostly happens in the death house, so I guess stay out of there if this is also one of your most hated ghost shenanigans. But it's weird, pressure on the chest when standing up, because normally when there's the pressure on the chest, it happens in hotels and it's in beds. So that's just real weird. Yeah, that is odd. In the cell blocks, people have seen apparitions out of the corner of their eyes, like people in the cells. Mm -hmm. Disembodied voices can also be heard coming from these cells. Uh, People also just report feeling an unknown presence in this area. In the hanging room, people have seen a man in a brimmed hat. I don't know... If he does anything, but at least he showed up, which is nice of him, I guess. (laughs) Also, in either the punishment hole or the dungeon, not sure which, since my source was a little bit super vague. um, But they said there was a ghostly and violent presence in there who still threatens visitors. But I don't know about that one since it was super vague. Mm, Okay, that's alarming. But if it's vague, I feel okay about it. (laughs) Exactly. So during tours of the death house, they put these candles in the cells, along with a picture of the murderer who was housed there. And although the video I watched didn't say who the guy was, the tour guide talking said he was probably the worst murderer in Wyoming history. Uh, The candle in his cell seems to burn brighter than the others, which is creepy all in its own. It seems like they may be talking about Andrew Pixley, though who murdered a family and sexually assaulted the female family members in 1964 at the Wart Motor Hotel, which is also haunted, by the way. Uh, He beat at least the two girls to death, but I honestly was strapped for time and didn't do a lot of thorough research on his crimes, but I may check him out in a refuel if you guys want. 
Uh, there was even rumor of um, cannibalism in that case as well, which is super gross. That's where I thought you might have been going with your true crime story when I heard Rawlings. So gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, no, I uh, I wasn't going there, but that's interesting because the only when I think of Wyoming and serial killers, I think of what the uh, boxcar killer. Like, doesn't yeah. he's in prison in Wyoming? But interesting. I never heard of that other one. Yeah, I hadn't heard of him either, but apparently he's super notorious over there. He was executed in the gas chamber there. And before they execute someone, they usually use a pig to check for leaks. But with him, they used a stray black cat that they found outside. Well, that is just fucked. Yes. And how do these animals help check for leaks, you might be wondering? I wish I didn't know the answer to this, but I do. They execute them first using the gas chamber. This black cat is also said to haunt the place and has been seen by staff there. And I do not blame that cat at all for haunting this place. A lot of the workers say they don't feel they are alone and they feel like they're being watched constantly, which makes sense. And maybe that super scary threatening presence is that Andrew Pixley guy. That would make sense. Since they say that, like, his candle, like, it burns more brightly than the others. They also say that it will, like, flicker a whole lot when they're talking about him. Weird. Yeah, like, one of the one of the staff, I believe, said that they didn't even like mentioning his name. <sighs> that's, uh, yeah, that's very uncomfortable. Oh, yeah, and he looks like a super creep, too. Ugh. Um, so that's what I found for this place, but there's probably still more to it since the place kind of sucks. Like most of the prisons we've talked about. I know. I'm like, I, I, everyone who worked there or worked there seems to be like an asshole who's killing cats yeah. and peeping people and like torturous. I don't, I don't like this place, but I would like to go visit this place. Awesome. So my question was going to be, do you want to go to prison with me? And I guess that's a yes. Sure. For this anyway. For Maybe this. not other things. <laughs> as long as we can leave again after the tour. Yes. Yeah, because I would not want to stay here at all. No, thank you. Mm-mm. So, yeah, like, what did you think? I think this might be, like, the worst prison you've covered, is if that's, like, not going too far. Because I feel like even, like, the atrocities we've covered at, like, military prisons and things haven't like, crossed into this just really depraved treatment of, like, your fellow human beings. It's really disturbing. This one was bad. I I think if I'm remembering correctly, that Pea Patch Island might have been a little worse, though. Oh yeah, Pea Patch was pretty terrible, but like it's the same point though. It's it's. I feel like Pea Patch was more like incompetence from yeah. Certain well, respects. they also had really terrible uh, guards who would do the rat calls. Remember that? Mm-hmm. This just feels like people who are just sadistic, like torturing true. these prisoners. Very true, because there was nothing nice about this prison, and there's no excuse for not having proper anything in cell block a until the 70s for god's sakes when you've been open since the early 1900s and i i think part of it too is like for me like hearing about how terrible this place is like no wonder you come across stories where criminals are desperate not to go back to prison because it sounds like oh hell yeah it sounds like hell on earth so it's like of course you're gonna do everything in your power to like go down fighting basically and that's that's my big, biggest problem with any of this is that I don't think we do prisons right. Because, yeah, I mean, people should, you know, I mean, if you're a murderer, you should probably be punished for what you do. Uh, but at the same time, prison's supposed to be about reforming people. 
supposed to be about making them into people who are okay to go out and be back in society. Mm -hmm. Torturing them is not going to help. So take that for what you will. But anyway, (laughs) my sources for this week were Wikipedia, TravelWyoming.com, KingFM.com, GuideToTravel.ca, MobileIrving.com, HauntedHouses.com, AtlasObscura.com, WyomingCarbonCounty.com, RoadsideAmerica.com, OnlyInYourState.com, TripAdvisor.com, and WyomingFrontierPrison.org. Thanks for that truly, truly disturbing story, Eden. (laughs) Absolutely. I love disturbing you, Nicole. I know you do. What I live for every Sunday. (laughs) Well, I guess that brings us to the end of Wyoming, our stay over in Wyoming. Uh, I believe our next stop is going to be Colorado. I believe so, too. And I've been saving up one that I think I might use for Colorado for my true crime. So, Oh, that's exciting. Yeah, I've got good ones for Colorado and Utah. They're a bit more well-known. Okay. But they're just also crazy. So, All right, That's exciting. So I'm excited to hear this next, next time we get together. Until then, if y'all have any feedback for us or you just want to reach out and say, hey, how you doing? You can do that by contacting us at our email address, which is roadsidehorrorshow at gmail.com. You can also visit our website, which is roadsidehorrorshow.podbean.com. And we are all over your social media. You can find us as Roadside Horror Show on Facebook and Instagram. We are also on Twitter at Roadside Horror. If you like what you heard, feel free to, you know, subscribe and review on your favorite podcast listening app. And last but not least, we'd like to thank Yox Rocks Design and E. Massey for our incredible logo and fantastic theme music. So until next time, Roadsters, creep, creep on, on, creep on. on.